Hey, my name is Colton. I'm one of the serving leaders here at Ethos. Thank you so much for checking out our podcast today. We hope that you can lean in and enjoy this message. Hey, good morning. Um, what was that? Um, hey, welcome to uh, what Andrea just said, week nine in the last week of the series we've called The Gift of Limits. Hey, uh, before I dive in, if you have missed any of the first eight weeks, I really encourage you to go back, listen to all of those. The value is incredible. You'll learn, you'll be challenged, and uh, they're all available on our website. So, a little over two weeks ago, on Saturday, July 15th, Saturday, July 15th, I found myself sitting with um, 11 really awesome people from uh, Ethos Church at the airport in San Salvador, the capital city of El Salvador. And we were sitting there waiting um, for an 11 p.m. red-eye flight from San Salvador to uh, Washington Dulles, uh, first leg of our journey um, back home. Uh, Overnight flights are not my favorite thing. Well, flights are not my favorite thing. Um, overnight flights, especially when I I know, in my mind at least, I know that this plane has to dodge and weave its way around mountains and volcanoes all while while defying the law of gravity and plunging, I just know it, straight into the ocean. It's not my favorite thing. (laughs) I'm always a little tense getting on to airplanes. But, well, the truth is, I have mixed emotions. So, um, on the one hand... I'm really fired up. I'm usually really excited because uh, no matter what, when I'm getting on an airplane, I'm usually going somewhere fun or different, or if it's a work trip, somewhere uh, challenging or new. Um, Or like this red eye from El Salvador, I'm on my way home to uh, my beautiful wife and my family. But, But on the other hand, I'm also almost always super nervous. I pray more on airplanes than almost anywhere else. The only place that's comparable um, in the amount of prayer is the first tee when there's like two groups behind me and I have to tee off in front of them. That comes, that comes close. But to me, my anxiety on an airplane, in my mind, it's well-founded. It makes perfect sense to me. Because at any time I step onto any airplane whatsoever, no matter where it is, I know, I know that at some point during that flight, there's going to be, there's going to be turbulence. At some point, that plane is going to start to bump and bounce and jump around the sky. It's going to happen. Even the, even the shortest flight, at some point, there's going to be that help me God moment that's going to hit you sitting in that seat. I know it's going to happen to me. And for me, as the plane starts to uh, shake and bounce and jump around the sky, all I, all I really want to know at that moment is whether there's someone up there in front that's in control, someone that's keeping his cool, someone that can handle the rough air, right? I become fixated on that question of whether, whether there's somebody in charge up there that knows what she's doing, who has the skill and the knowledge and the ability to keep this thing in the air going safely in the right direction. That's all I'm thinking about as that plane jumps around. As I sit there in 15C with that, with that chair in front of me fully reclined into my legs and with that kid behind me always, it's that same kid every flight sitting behind me, <laughs> 
kicking me every seven minutes just as I doze off, it strikes me that what looked so sturdy, what looked so stable sitting on the ground at the airport gate, it now feels completely insecure and out of control. And for me, when the sky is perfectly smooth, or even when I'm boarding that plane at the airport, at the gate, when it's sitting safely on the ground, at that moment, at those moments, I have no, t- no trouble trusting Boeing to keep me safe, right? But up in the air, things are different. When I'm actually in the middle of turbulence, actually experiencing the rough air, when I'm right in the middle of the jumping around the sky, my feelings change. I've thought about this a lot, because again, it happens to me every time. I think those moments bother me so much. They scare me so much, because there's really absolutely nothing I can do in those moments to protect myself. Nothing. I'm powerless. I have zero control. I have zero ability to act in any way that would help make the circumstances any different. There's nothing I can do to make the turbulence stop. But listen... If I'm honest with you, if I'm honest even with myself, that feeling of turbulence, that feeling of suddenly bouncing around, jumping up and down, out of control, that's not not unique to airplanes for me. That feeling of physical helplessness, that sense that my own physical limitations, what I can do, the change that I can affect, Those limitations prevent me from doing anything to change my circumstances. Those feelings of physical helplessness, powerlessness, they can hit me out of nowhere at any time. I don't have to be on an airplane for that to happen. Time after time in life, all of a sudden, out of nowhere sometimes, life can start bouncing around just like that airplane, like it's totally out of control, simply beyond my ability to affect any kind of change. Have you ever felt like that? Thank you for that one person who's felt like that. That's... If you're like me, there have been many times you've been blindsided by turbulence, by rough air in your life. You know, work is, work is going fantastically well until it suddenly isn't. Maybe your health was great. You were feeling great until that one x-ray or that one test result. Maybe your family or your marriage or your friendship or your kids or, or school or your relationships. Maybe those were in great shape or so you thought. Maybe it's that tiny little habit. You know that one? That tiny little habit that you thought was no big deal. You suddenly see it. It's turned into an addiction. You don't know how to stop. You've sworn a hundred times, I will never do that again but you just can't get it under control. It just won't let go. There are as many of these unique and often sudden times of turbulence um, as there are people. We're all unique, and our circumstances of turbulence are all unique. They're unique to you sometimes, but, but turbulence affects us all. In my life, I've felt that way probably a thousand times over my, don't gasp, over my 56 years. You know, between miscarriages and job uh, transitions and dreams crushed and kids bawling their eyes out because they didn't make the team or because the people they thought were friends turned out to be just the opposite, 
between struggles in marriage and family and work and struggles in those secret places deep inside of me that no one else sees. Turbulence happens. It comes in a million different ways, but it happens. It happens to all of us. Those moments of fear are not new to human experience. Today we're going to look at just one uh, pretty short story, one of those moments where most of the key characters in this story felt like things were totally out of control, like their airplane was bouncing all over and they could do nothing to stop it. In Matthew chapter 14, if you have a Bible, turn there. If not, it's fine. We're going to have these verses up on the screen. Matthew chapter 14, 22 to 31, there's a story for us that's directly on point. We're going to read this text together. We're going to read Matthew 14, 22 to 31. Follow along as I read this. Matthew 14, verse 22. Immediately, okay, we'll stop there for a minute. <laughs> we need to stop right there for a second. Let's, that, that immediately, that's a signal for, for us as readers. It's an important word. It's a, it's a signal for us to put this story in context. The, the writer uses, uses this word immediately. It's important to notice because he's saying, hey, audience, this thing that I'm about to tell you happened right after the last stuff I told you about. And for you to understand this next story I tell you, it's important to remember where we are in the bigger story. It's, it's important to, where we just, to understand where we just came from. So let's do that. By immediately, Matthew is telling us to remember, hey, in Matthew chapter 13, just one chapter ago, Jesus was teaching huge groups of people. Thousands of people were starting to show up and following, follow him. They're coming to him from everywhere. But opposition is beginning to grow too. By the end of chapter 13, the crowds are there, but there are others that are beginning to outright reject him, make fun of him oppose him too. And by Matthew chapter 14, things have turned violent. Things have turned violent. John the Baptist, we read, has been executed. And then right away, right before our story in, that begins in, in verse 22, Jesus tries to get away for a little bit of rest. He needs some time to re recover, to process through the execution of his, of his relative, John the Baptist. He just needs to get away. But people find him. They find him once again, they follow him out into the wilderness, and he sits down and he teaches them. And when he's done teaching them, he realizes they need to eat. And then we read this cool story about Jesus multiplying loaves of bread and a couple of fish and feeding thousands and thousands of people. That's what happens right before our story. Now back to the story, but keep all of that in mind. It's all very important. Verse 22, immediately after all that other stuff that we just described, Jesus made the disciples, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat, go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. Yeah, no kidding. It's a ghost, they said. They cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Verse 28. Lord, if it's you, if it's really you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Verse 29. Come, he said. 
Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. Verse 30, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid. Beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? So Jesus, after feeding 5,000 people, he orders, he instructs his disciples, these 12 guys, to get into a boat and to set off across the Sea of Galilee without him. So the disciples do exactly what Jesus told them to do. They obey him perfectly. They leave by boat. Jesus stays on shore and dismisses this crowd of thousands. And then he goes a little bit further off to, by himself to pray. And we fast forward just a few hours later. The disciples are out in the middle of the sea. They're making very slow progress because verse 24 says the wind was against them. The waves were buffeting the boat. They were caught in the middle of a storm. And now hours later, they're likely exhausted, well into their journey across the sea. They look up, and they see Jesus walking across the water. They had to think they were hallucinating, seeing something. But when they realized that what they were seeing was real, they conclude that it was a ghost. They see Jesus, they're scared to death. Verse 27 then says that the ghost, this ghost that's walking across the water, identifies himself and he says, don't be afraid. I would think easier said than done in that moment. And as the guys, though, they, they look and they hear Jesus' voice and they start to calm down just a little bit, Peter does what Peter does. He talks. <laughs> he opens his mouth and he says what's on his mind. With his stunned buddy staring at him with mouths hanging open, Peter asked Jesus if he, Peter, could please walk on the water too. He says, Jesus, I want to do that. If it's you, tell me I can come and walk on the water. Jesus, I imagine, gives Peter a little wave and says, yes. Tells Peter to go ahead, get out of the boat. But you may have noticed earlier when we read these things, once Peter steps out of the stability and relative safety of the boat, things don't go perfectly for him. Peter's airplane hits turbulence right after takeoff, and he's scared. Look at verses 29 and 30 again. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. So far, so good. Verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. So Peter takes this huge, this truly enormous step of faith. Let's not miss that. Let's not, let's not get critical of Peter and miss the fact that he was, was the only one of the 12 that said, hey, I want to do that too. And he actually accepted Jesus at his word and he got out of the boat and he started to walk. He took this enormous step of faith. But then the story says Peter saw the wind and he was afraid. Peter takes his eyes off of Jesus and focuses instead on the turbulence all around him. And it's then that he starts to sink. Fear overwhelms him. And just before he goes under, Peter cries out for Jesus to please, please help. It's not much of a stretch to imagine that the 11 guys in the boat were yelling to Jesus, help our friend. And it turns out 
that despite the wind, despite the waves, despite all of the turbulence that felt so out of control, Jesus was in control all along. Jesus reaches down, he embraces Peter, and he lifts him up. And then Jesus looks at Peter and asks him a question. And listen, this is a question we can't miss. I believe this is maybe the most important question, or at least in the top 10 of questions in the entire Bible. This is the most important question to me. Verse 31. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. He grabbed a hold of him. He embraced him. Said, you of little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? This question that Jesus asks uh, Peter, it's really, really interesting. And the nuance doesn't really show up in an English translation, okay? So I'm going to get a little, I'm going to get even dorkier than you already thought I was. I'm going to talk about Greek. What Jesus says, when Jesus says why, as in why did you doubt, he uses the Greek phrase ace t, not the common way of saying why, dia t. Jesus says ace t, not dia t. Both are translated um, why. The normal, usual way to ask this question in the first century Greek would have been with the words dia t, means because of what. This is, asking, this is asking for a list, a clinical recitation of the underlying reasons for what you did. Why did you do it? What is the, what is the clinical list of, of explanation? Give it to them. But that's not what Jesus says. Instead here, Jesus uses the words aste, also translated why. It's a very different question. He's not asking Peter for a simple list of reasons why. Aste is more like saying, what's the point? What's the point? It's more of a rhetorical question. What's the point of what you did? Why in the world would you doubt what got into you? What got into you? Jesus looks at Peter, and when I read this story as a, as a young person a long, long time ago, I, I felt like Jesus was kind of rebuking Peter. I don't read it that way anymore. I think he looked at Peter, a little smile on his face, and said, Peter, what is the point of doubt when I'm here? How does your doubt even make logical sense when you're walking with me? Peter, I'm here. You've seen me. You know me. Just yesterday, Peter, you saw me feed thousands of people with a few loaves of bread. You've seen me heal the sick. You've seen me cast out demons, restore the sight to the blind. You've even seen me hear, heal people that were paralyzed from birth. You know me, Peter. Why in the world would you doubt? I think with, again, this is in my mind as I read this, but with a, with a little smile on his face, I think Jesus says to Peter, you've missed the whole point. The difference between faith and fear is not the circumstances around you. The difference is whether I am there with you or not. Yeah. Think about that. The difference between faith and fear is not the circumstances. It's not the wind and the waves. It's not whether the plane is jumping up and down or not. It's not 
that thing that came to your mind when we were going through the recitation earlier of turbulence in our lives, those are, those are not the things that make the difference between uh, fear and faith. The difference, Peter, is whether I'm there with you or not. And that's the point of this whole story. That's the point of this question. When Jesus is there, doubt and fear, while those things are natural and human and very, very common, they simply don't make sense standing next to Jesus. The point here is that the critical fact is Jesus' presence. And if you have the presence of Jesus, if you are walking with him, Peter, if you're walking with me, Peter, it's not the nature of the surrounding circumstances, no matter how rough and bumpy it all feels. That's the sense of Jesus' question to Peter. What got into you? When Jesus is there, doubt and fear are illogical. That's true of Peter, and it's true of me, and it's true of you. I surrendered my life. I surrendered my life to Jesus one July night in Clark Summit, Pennsylvania. Anybody ever been to Clark Summit, Pennsylvania? Have any of you seen The Office? Five minutes away. Just outside of Scranton. I surrendered my life to Jesus one night in Clark Summit, Pennsylvania when I was 16 years old. That's almost exactly 40 years ago. 40 years. Since then, I've followed him very, very imperfectly. Some would say badly. But I've tried. It's been two steps forward, one step back. I think maybe most of you can relate to that. But I've seen in my 40 years of trying to follow Jesus over and over and over again what he's done in the middle of my own turbulence. What he's done in the middle of turbulence at times when I was absolutely convinced the plane was irretrievably lost. He has healed relationships that I thought were unhealable, that were lost forever. He's brought me through failures, disappointments that I thought would sink the rest of my life. He's walked with me, and Renee, I'm not describing what those are, so don't ask my wife what those are later. He's walked with me through job changes and disappointments consequences of sin, betrayals, times when I was absolutely positive that the sky was falling and there was zero hope left. Every single time. Not always when I wanted or how I wanted, but every single time. He's been faithful to his word. He's kept his promises. That's the big picture of this story. That's the 35,000 foot perspective on this story. But with that big picture in mind, as we get kind of close to me uh, concluding this message, there are four very short, really important takeaways for us to take with us this morning. I want you to remember these four things or pick one of them to remember. Four things from this story. First, turbulence in my life is a normal part of following Jesus. You are not experiencing something unusual, abnormal. I have a tendency to see every bump in the road, every bit of turbulence in the air as a sure sign that I'm in the wrong place, as a sure sign that I'm there at the wrong time, as a sure sign that I'm doing the wrong thing. But that's not true. 
the story demonstrates its falsity in very stark, unmistakable terms. Look back at verses 22 to 24. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. And the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the, by the waves because the wind was against it. Don't miss Matthew's point here. The disciples found themselves right in the middle of the storm at sea precisely because they did exactly what Jesus told them to do. He put them in the boat. He ordered them out to sea. He sent them into these specific rough waters. Jesus did that. They obeyed him perfectly, and yet they found themselves in great turbulence. In his uh, really excellent book that I recommend, John Ortberg, um, in this book, if you want to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat. It's a great book. He puts it like this. It's interesting that the disciples entered the boat in the first place at Jesus' command. They would have to learn, as we do, that obedience is no guarantee of being spared adversity. That's not what you're going to hear on late night uh, cable TV shows, but it's true. The truth here is that Jesus had a goal for them that was very, very different from their own goal for themselves. Just like us, the disciples had the goal of safely, comfortably, and easily reaching the opposite shore. That's what I want to. I, when I leave here today, I want to drive home safely, smoothly, comfortably, and I want to arrive at my home in peace. I have no guarantee that that's what's going to happen. In contrast to that desire, Jesus' goal for them was that they learn about him, who he was, that they learn that if he is faithful, that he is faithful and trustworthy, that he is in control, that he cared and could handle it even when appearances seemed the opposite. That's his goal for you and me too this morning. That's takeaway number one, that turbulence in my life is a normal part of following Jesus. Takeaway number two, turbulence doesn't scare Jesus away. It draws him near. Turbulence, rough skies, troubles, pain, disappointment, lost dreams, sickness, Fill in the blank of what you thought of earlier. That does not scare Jesus away. It draws him near. And it's critical to Matthew that his readers understand that storms are no indication that God has left me alone, that he's gone away, that he's forgotten me. Just the opposite. Jesus very often comes to to us most clearly, most obviously himself, right in the middle of the storm, right in the middle of the turbulence. Verse 25, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I. Jesus came to them in their moment of turbulence, identified himself, and stepped alongside of them. John Ortberg again says this, Matthew wants his readers to know that Jesus often comes when least expected, 3 a.m. in the middle of a storm. He goes on to say that according to the Holy Scriptures, human extremity is the frequent meeting place with God. 
Turbulence in life is a normal part of following Jesus. Turbulence doesn't scare Jesus away. It draws him near. Third takeaway today. Following Jesus means getting out of the boat. Sometimes right in the middle of the storm, at exactly the time it seems to make the least sense. That's what our friend Peter discovered. He's in the middle of a storm on a shallow sea known for dangerous conditions. These conditions are strong enough, they're difficult enough to scare um, a boat full of fishermen, a boat full of guys who did this for a living. The wind is strong and the waves are big. And Peter, seeing Jesus, realizing probably not a ghost, probably is Jesus, he has this sudden realization. The light goes on and he realizes what Jesus is doing and he realizes, unlike the other 11, the opportunity that he has. And he's got a choice to make. Peter in the boat in that split second. On the one hand, this is the opportunity of a lifetime, right? Jesus is inviting him into an adventure of a lifetime, a chance to do something he had never been done before, and as far as he knew, had never been done before. But on the other hand, what would your friends say? The opportunity, it's illogical, and it's dangerous, and it scares him to death, and he wants to sit still in the boat. But if he doesn't get up, step up, get out of the safety of his immediate surrounding, the the safety and relative stability of that boat, he will never ever walk on water. That's what he's confronted with. Same with me, same with you. If I sit still, safe, as far away from the waves as possible, I probably won't drown, but I won't walk on water either. And Peter made his choice, he got up and he stepped out, and the rest, as they say, is history. You and I are sitting here this morning, well, you're sitting, I'm standing here this morning, talking about it some 2,000 years later. How many times over the rest of his life do you think Peter told this story? I imagine his family got sick of hearing about it. People were sitting around, and all of a sudden, here goes Uncle Pete again, talking about the time that he and Jesus walked on the water. Wouldn't have had that story if he hadn't gotten out of the boat. What's that mean for me today? What's it mean for you? Well, first, let's recognize that that my boat, that Jesus invites me to step out to also, that's anything and everything that represents safety and security apart from Jesus himself. It's anything that represents safety and security that you run to for safety apart from Jesus himself. It could be that awesome job that you have. It could be your social media popularity. How many likes and follows do you have? Could be your relationships, romantic or otherwise. Could be the money that you've saved up, the balance in your 401k, your life success, your reputation. Could be sex, it could be power, could be position, could be family or kids, it could be serving in a church. It could be your place in a faith community, the amount of respect you receive when you walk into uh, these doors. It could be relying on your education. It could be relying on on, um, self-care that has created a level of care uh, to a degree that you don't care about anything else. What's your boat? Where do you find a sense of safety and security apart from Jesus? Here's a quick way to figure it out. Look closely at your fear. Look closely at your fear. What is it that I'm most scared of leaving behind if God reaches into my heart and calls me to go? 
if I follow Jesus, if I do things differently, if I'm willing to get out of the boat, what am I most afraid I'll lose? Three takeaways. Turbulence in life is a normal part of following Jesus. Turbulence doesn't scare Jesus away, it draws him near. Following Jesus means getting out of the boat, sometimes right in the middle of the storm, right when it makes the least possible sense. Here's the last one. If you're going to remember any of the four, remember this one. They're all good. They're all super good. They were, but this is the, the best one. Jordan, thank you for the little laugh. That was... It's number four. Jesus loves, loves, loves imperfect, flawed followers. Jesus loves imperfect, flawed followers. Contrary to popular opinion or perception, contrary to that voice of the enemy that speaks into your mind, uh, speaks lies, Jesus loves you. He loves imperfect, flawed followers like every single person in this room. We think, or at least we feel, I do anyway, just the opposite most of the time. We think we've got to get ourselves together. We've got to do it right, do it well, and look good doing it. Then if I'm, if I'm good enough, if I'm only good enough, if I try hard enough, then maybe Jesus will want me. Maybe then he'll reach down and embrace me and pull me up. Maybe that's what I need. But to the contrary, this, this story and so many other stories throughout the four biographies of Jesus that we have in the New Testament, Jesus absolutely loves when we follow him wholeheartedly, even though we fall down and mess up and fail and do so imperfectly, so imperfectly that it doesn't even look like we're following he loves you when you do that. Matthew intentionally uses this picture of human touch, of Jesus reaching down and taking a hold of Peter, of Jesus reaching out, of catching one right in need to convey a picture of a loving relationship and connection precisely, precisely at the moment of failure. Jesus reaches out for Peter, pulls him up, embraces him right at the moment of failure. Jesus doesn't just order Peter to get up either. He doesn't just coldly just tell him to get up and keep walking. Jesus reaches out physically in love and care and concern for this one individual, this one guy who was foolish enough to step out of the boat and clumsily, almost fatally, stumbled to him across the water. And the point for us today is that Jesus loves exactly the same thing in me and you too. I am not, please appreciate the metaphor, I am not encouraging you to go out today and attempt to walk on water. But I am encouraging you to listen closely to what Jesus is calling you to do and to not be discouraged by failure after failure after failure after failure. Because Jesus loves you at precisely that moment. Now, it's absolutely true that Jesus calls me to follow him. That's true. And he calls me to follow him with all that I've got the best I can. He does ask me to surrender my life to him, all of it, sincerely. But because I'm human, 
I'm imperfect, I'm broken, I'm selfish, and, and speaking for myself, I'm just, I'm just plain dumb sometimes. Following Jesus doesn't mean flawless perfection. Never has, it never will, so long as we are human this side of eternity. Following Jesus means a little at a time with lots of failures and lots of hiccups and lots of restarts and lots of stumbles and that's okay. That's okay. We believe here at Ethos Church that every single one of us is still in process. There's no one who's made it yet. There's no one perfect. We are all, every one of us, in the process of becoming, of stepping into God's story for humanity, and each and every one of us individually, and each and every one of us collectively together, taking steps together, imperfect as they are, stumbling as they are, to become more and more like Jesus himself. If that's you, you are welcome here, and the point of the story is that Jesus welcomes you as well. Today might be your day to reach back, and I'd encourage you to do that. In just a minute, we're going to celebrate that idea. We're going to take communion together, and in communion, we come together as a group of imperfect, stumbling people who recognize our need for the grace of God expressed in the person of Jesus Christ, his son. In communion, we celebrate the fact that, yes, we come forward as sinners, but we recognize that Jesus, through his perfect life on our behalf, through his death on our behalf, through his resurrection on our behalf, has reached out to each one of us, embraced us, and pulled us to himself. That's what we celebrate in communion.